0: Lesson 8 for August 12 through to 18, From Slaves to Heirs. Sabbath afternoon, August 12. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your participation in our lives. We thank you that we can call on you when we need to. And this week, as we open your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us, that our faith in Jesus may be strengthened, and that our love for you will grow greater and greater. We pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Galatians chapter 4 and verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Let's read that again, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Paul tells the Galatians that they should not live and act as slaves, but as the sons and daughters of God, with all the rights and privileges thereof, a truth that the young Martin Luther needed to hear. As his convictions of sin deepened, the young man sought by his own works to obtain pardon and peace. He led a most vigorous life, endeavoring by fasting, vigils, and scourgings to subdue the evils of his nature, from which the monastic life had brought no relief. Luther shrank from no sacrifice by which he might obtain such purity of heart that could enable him to stand approved before God, He was, he said, later, actually, a pious monk who strictly followed the rules of his order, and yet he found no peace within them. If every monk, he said, could obtain heaven by his monkish works, I should certainly have been entitled to it. Yet it didn't work for Luther." Only, as he later began to understand the truth about salvation in Christ as revealed in Galatians, did he ever start to have any kind of spiritual freedom and hope for his own soul. As a result, too, our world has never been the same. Sunday, August 13. Our condition in Christ. Question: Keeping Galatians chapter 3 verse 25 in mind, read Galatians 3:26. How does this text help us understand what our relationship to the law is now that we have been redeemed in Jesus? Galatians chapter 3, and we'll read verse 25 first. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And verse 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The word for at the beginning of verse 26 indicates that Paul sees a direct connection between this verse and the preceding one, verse 25. In the same way, a master's son was under a pedagogue only as long as he was a minor. Paul is saying that those who come to faith in Christ are no longer minors. Their relationship with the law is changed because they are now adult sons of God. The term son is not, of course, exclusive to males, as Paul clearly includes females in this category just two verses later in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The reason he uses the word sons instead of children is that He has in mind the family inheritance that was passed on to the male offspring, along with the fact that the phrase, Sons of God, was the special designation of Israel in the Old Testament. As we read in Deuteronomy 14, verse 1, You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, nor shave the front of your head for the dead." And Hosea 11 verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In Christ, Gentiles now also enjoy the special relationship with God that had been exclusive to Israel. Question. What is it about baptism that makes it such a significant event? Galatians 3 27 and 28. We'll reread that again from our text at the beginning. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And then Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through to 11. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death For he who died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And 1 Peter 3, verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul's use of the word for in verse 27 indicates once again the close, logical development of his reasoning. Paul sees baptism as a radical decision to unite our lives with Christ. In Romans 6, he describes baptism symbolically as our uniting with Jesus, both in his death and resurrection. In Galatians, Paul employs a different metaphor. Baptism is the act of being clothed with Christ. Paul's terminology is reminiscent of wonderful passages in the Old Testament that talk about being clothed with righteousness and salvation. As we read in Isaiah 61 and verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God For he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And Job 29 verse 14, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. In his book Galatians, Published in 1992, page 145, Frank J. Matera writes, Paul views baptism as the moment when Christ, like a garment, envelops the believer. Although he does not employ the term, Paul is describing the righteousness which is conferred upon believers. End of quote. Our union with Christ, symbolised through baptism, means that What is true of Christ also is true of us. Because Christ is the seed of Abraham, as joint heirs with Christ, as it says in Romans 8.17, believers also are heirs to all the covenant promises made to Abraham and his descendants. So to finish today, dwell on the thought that what is true of Christ is also true of us. How should this amazing truth affect every aspect of our existence, Monday, August fourteen. Enslaved to elementary principles. Having just compared our relationship to God with that of sons and heirs, Paul now elaborates on this metaphor by including the theme of inheritance in Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 to 3, which we'll read shortly. Paul's terminology evokes a situation in which an owner of a large estate has died, leaving all his property to his oldest son. His son, however, is still a minor. As is often the case with wills even today, the father's will stipulates that his son is to be under the supervision of guardians and managers until he reaches maturity. Though he is master of his father's estate by title, as a minor he is little more than a slave in practice. Paul's analogy is similar to that of the pedagogue in Galatians three twenty four, but in this case the power of the stewards and managers is far superior and much more important. They are responsible not only for the upbringing of the master's son but also the financial and administrative affairs until the son is mature enough to assume those duties himself. Question. Read Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through to 3. What is Paul saying here that, again, should help clarify what the role of the law should be in our lives now that we are in Christ? Galatians 4, 1 through to 3. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Exactly what Paul means by the phrase elementary principles, or as it said in the version I just read here, under the elements of the world, is disputed. The Greek word stoichia literally means elements some have seen it as a description of the basic elements that compose the universe as we read in second peter chapter 3 verses 10 through to 12 but the day of the lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up therefore since all these things will be dissolved What manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Or, as demonic powers that control this evil age, as in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, in it. Or, as the rudimentary principles of religious life, the ABCs of religion, as we read in Hebrews 5.12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Paul's emphasis on humanity's status as minors before the coming of Christ in Galatians 4.1-3 suggests that he is referring here to the rudimentary principles of religious life. If so, Paul is saying that the Old Testament period, with its laws and sacrifice, was merely a gospel primer that outlined the basics of salvation. Thus, as important and as instructional as the ceremonial laws were to Israel— They were only shadows of what was to come. They never were intended to take the place of Christ. To regulate one's life around these rules instead of Christ then is like wanting to go back in time. So, for the Galatians to return to those basic elements after Christ already had come would be like the adult son in Paul's analogy wanting to be a minor again. And so to finish today while a childlike faith can be positive as we read in matthew eighteen three, and said assuredly i say to you unless you are converted and become as little children you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven is it necessarily the same thing as spiritual maturity or could you argue that the more you grow spiritually the more childlike your faith will be How childlike, innocent and trusting is your life? Tuesday, August 15th. GOD SENT FORTH HIS SON Our text for today is Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Paul's choice of the word fullness indicates God's active role in working out His purpose in human history. Jesus did not come at just any time. He came at the precise time God had prepared. From a historical perspective, that time is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman Peace, a 200-year period of relative stability and peace across the Roman Empire. Rome's conquest of the Mediterranean world brought peace, a common language, favourable means of travel and a common culture that facilitated the rapid spread of the gospel. From a biblical perspective, it also marked the time that God had set for the coming of the promised Messiah, as we read in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through to 27. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to bring reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, THE STREET SHALL BE BUILT AGAIN, AND THE WALL, EVEN IN TROUBLESOME TIMES. AND AFTER THE 62 WEEKS, MESSIAH SHALL BE CUT OFF, BUT NOT FOR HIMSELF. AND THE PEOPLE OF THE PRINCE, WHO IS TO COME, SHALL DESTROY THE CITY AND THE SANCTUARY, AND THE END OF IT SHALL BE WITH A FLOOD, AND TILL THE END OF THE WAR DESOLATIONS ARE DETERMINED. THEN HE SHALL CONFIRM A COVENANT WITH MANY FOR ONE WEEK. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Question. Why did Christ have to take our humanity in order to redeem us? Well, we're going to look at a number of texts here. John chapter one verse fourteen, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. And Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit and Second Corinthians chapter five and verse twenty one for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him and Philippians chapter two, verses five through to eight on the cross. And Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through to 18. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted and hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through to 15 seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 contains one of the most succinct accounts of the Gospel in Scripture. These clear verses put forth God's plan for the world, indicating that the coming of Jesus into human history was no accident. God sent forth His Son. In other words, God took the initiative in our salvation. Also implicit in these words is the fundamental Christian belief in Christ's eternal deity. As we read in John chapter 1, verses 1-3, to 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has... of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name. And Colossians 1 verses 15 through to 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. God did not send a heavenly messenger. He himself came. Although he was the divine pre-existent Son of God, Jesus was also born of a woman. Though the virgin birth is implied in this phrase, it more specifically affirms his genuine humanity. The phrase, born under the law, points not only to Jesus' Jewish heritage, but also includes the fact that he bore our condemnation. Thus, it was necessary for Christ to assume our humanity because we could not save ourselves. By uniting His divine nature with our fallen human nature, Christ legally became qualified to be our substitute, Saviour and High Priest. As the second Adam, He came to reclaim all that the first Adam had lost by His disobedience. We read now in Romans chapter 5, verses 12-21. to 21, Therefore, just as through one man's death sin entered the world, and death through sin... And thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offence. For if by the one man's offence many died much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offence resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offences resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offence death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offence judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. By his obedience, he perfectly fulfilled the law's demands, thus redeeming Adam's tragic failure. And by his death on the cross, he met the justice of the law, which required the death of the sinner, thus gaining the right to redeem all who come to him in true faith and surrender. Wednesday, August 16, the privileges of adoption. Our text for today is Galatians 4, verses 5 through to 7, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. In Galatians chapter 4 verses 5 through to 7, Paul expands on his theme, stressing that Christ has now redeemed those who were under the law. The verb redeem means to buy back. It referred to the price paid to buy the freedom of either a hostage or a slave. As this context indicates, redemption implies a negative background. A person is in need of being liberated. From what, though, do we need to be freed? The New Testament presents four things, among others. One, freed from the devil and his wiles, in Hebrews chapter 2. Freed from death, in 1 Corinthians 15. Freed from the power of sin that enslaves us by nature, in Romans chapter 6. And freed from the condemnation of the law, Romans chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 3 talk about that. Question what positive purpose has Christ achieved for us through the redemption we have in him? And once again we read our text for today, Galatians 4, verses 5 through to 7. To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And Romans 8 verses 15 through to 23 for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together." For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was... Subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And Romans chapter 9 verses 4 through to 5, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises— of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. We often speak about what Christ has accomplished for us with our salvation. Though true, this word is not nearly as vivid in descriptive as Paul's unique use of the word adoption, euathesia, which is H-U-I-O-T-H-E-S-I-A. Although Paul is the only New Testament author to use this word, adoption was a well-known legal procedure in the greco roman world. Several Roman emperors during Paul's life used adoption as the means of choosing a successor when they had no legal heir. Adoption guaranteed a number of privileges. One, as, <clears throat> and, and this part comes from The Use and Abuse of Parallels by Derek R. Moore Crispin, uh, about Galatians four one to nine in the evangelical quarterly of uh, nineteen eighty nine one the adopted son becomes the true son of his adopter two the adopter agrees to bring up the child properly and to provide the necessities of food and clothing 3. The adopter cannot repudiate his adopted son. 4. The child cannot be reduced to slavery. 5. The child's natural parents have no right to reclaim him. And 6. The adoption establishes the right to inherit. End of quote. If these rights are guaranteed on an earthly level, just imagine how much greater are the privileges we have as the adopted children of God. So to finish today, read Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, realising that the Hebrew word Abba was the intimate word children used to address their father, like the word Daddy or Papa today. Jesus used it in prayer in Mark 14, and as God's children, we have the privilege of calling God Abba as well. Galatians 4, verse 6, And because you are sons... God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Do you enjoy that kind of intimate closeness to God in your own life? If not, what's the problem? What can you change to bring about this closeness? thursday august 17 why turn back to slavery question read galatians chapter 4 verses 8 through to 10 summarize on the lines below what paul is saying in these verses actually i think you may need to stop the car at this point if you're listening while you're driving and make a few notes how seriously does he take the false teachings among Galatians? Galatians chapter 4 verses 8 through to 20. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have laboured for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that, because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first, and my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus.' What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a Good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labour in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Paul does not describe the exact nature of the Galatians' of religious practices, but he clearly has in mind a false system of worship that resulted in spiritual slavery. Indeed, he deemed it so dangerous and destructive that he would write such an impassioned letter warning the Galatians that what they were doing was akin to turning away from sonship to slavery. Question. Though he didn't get into specifics, what does Paul say the Galatians were doing that he found so objectionable. And that we find in verses 9 through to 11. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have laboured for you in vain." The Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, volume 6, page 967, has this to say. Many have interpreted Paul's reference to days and months and seasons and years in Galatians 4.10 as an objection not merely against ceremonial laws, but against the Sabbath as well. Such an interpretation, however, goes beyond the evidence. For starters, if Paul really wanted us to single out the Sabbath and other specific Jewish practices, it is clear from Colossians 2.16 that he easily could have identified them by name. Second, Paul makes it clear that whatever it is the Galatians are doing, it has led them from freedom in Christ to bondage. If observance of the seventh-day Sabbath subjects a man to bondage, it must be that the Creator himself entered into bondage, when he observed the world's first Sabbath, End of quote. Also, why would Jesus not only have kept the Sabbath, but taught others how to keep it, if its proper observance were in any way depriving people of the freedom that they have in him? And we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, and Luke chapter 13, verses 10 to 16. Now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, and was bent over, and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days on which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord then answered him and said, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall, and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound, think of it, for eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And so to finish the day, might there be any practices in Seventh-day Adventism that take away from the freedom that we have in Christ, or instead of the practices themselves being problematic, what about our attitudes toward the practices? how could a wrong attitude lead us into the kind of bondage that paul warned the galatians about so vehemently Friday, August eighteen, from an article titled "Chosen in Christ" in the Signs of the Times of January two, eighteen ninety-three, one of my favorite writers pens this: In the Council of Heaven, provision was made that men, though transgressors, should not perish in their disobedience, but through faith in Christ as their substitute and surety, might become the elect of God predestinated unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. God wills that all men should be saved, for ample provision has been made in giving His only begotten Son to pay man's ransom. Those who perish will perish because they refuse to be adopted as children of God through Christ Jesus. The pride of man hinders him from accepting the provisions of salvation. But human merit will not admit a soul into the presence of God. That which will make a man acceptable to God is the imparted grace of Christ through faith in His name. No dependence can be placed in works or in happy flights of feelings as evidence that men are chosen of God, for the elect are chosen through Christ. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Dwell more on the idea of what it means and what it does not mean to be like children in our walk with the Lord. What aspects of children are we to emulate in regard to our faith and our relationship with God? At the same time, what are ways in which we can take this idea too far? Be prepared to discuss this. 2. What is it about human beings that makes them so afraid of the idea of grace or salvation by faith alone? Why is it that many people would rather try to work their way to salvation, if that were possible? And three, as a class, go over the final question from Thursday's study. In what ways can we as Seventh-day Adventists get caught up in the kind of slavery that ideally we have been freed from? How could this happen to us? How can we know if it does? And how can we be set free? So to summarize this week's lesson, in Christ we have been adopted into God's family as his sons and daughters. As God's children, we have access to all the rights and privileges that such a family relationship entails. To relate to God on the basis of rules and regulations alone would be foolish. It would be like a son wanting to renounce his position and inheritance in order to become a slave. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Innocently Jailed, Part 1. Could life get any worse? Prabda wondered as she sat in the jail cell I'm innocent of this crime. Why don't the gods listen to me? Prabda was barely 16 years old when she was arrested for a murder she didn't commit. Prabda's family was poor. She and her sisters hadn't attended school and had to work to help feed their family. When she was fifteen, her father died, plunging the family deeper into poverty. "'Father had become a Christian before his death, but what good did it do to him?' Prabda wondered. "'He died anyway.' Prabda worked for a wealthy elderly woman whom she respectfully called Ma, cooking, cleaning and sometimes keeping her company." Ma was good to Prabda, who often was her only companion since her own husband had died. One evening, as Prabda was preparing to go home, Ma begged her to stay with her that night so she wouldn't be alone. Prabda agreed. She knew that Ma was lonely, for her adopted son was out of town. About 3am, Ma called to Prabda, "'Please heat water for my ritual bath. "'I want to be ready for morning prayers, "'for today is the festival for my God.' Prabda nodded and walked through the dark house to the kitchen. Opening the kitchen door, she discovered several men hiding there. Before she could scream, they grabbed her and covered her mouth. One man pulled a knife and waved it threateningly at her, cutting her several times. Another tied her with a rope and shoved her into the corner. Trembling, she watched the men make their way toward Ma's room. Prabda heard Ma shout as the men entered her room. She heard the men demand Ma's money, jewels and gold. Then she heard a muffled scream and a thud. Scuffles followed, then the men ran out of the house. Prabda struggled free of the ropes but discovered the kitchen door locked. She broke a window and crawled through and, calling for help, In Ma's room, she found the old woman lying still on the floor. Ma! Ma! Prabda called as she gently shook the old woman. But it was too late. Ma was dead. Prabda shouted out the window to a passing man to call the police. Robbers broke in and have killed Ma! she shouted hysterically. The police arrived and Prabda told them what had happened. They took her to the hospital where her wounds were treated, but when she was released, the police arrested her and took her to jail. They were convinced that Prabda had killed Ma. And this story is to be continued next week. I wonder how it will end. In the meantime, have a great Sabbath and remember that God is always faithful. This lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.